stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. Over the last decade, a startling number of horror stories have come out of the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. Inmates assaulted by guards, inmates murdered by other inmates, drug overdoses, and outrageously awful living conditions. And what makes it worse is that these aren't little-known events. They've been reported on heavily over the last 12 years. There have been lawsuits that have brought the problems at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center to the forefront at Queen's Park. However, things don't seem to have gotten much better. Overcrowding continues to be a problem. And just recently, another inmate died at the jail, the second inmate fatality of this year. When you add up the problems at the EMDC, it becomes clear it is one of Ontario's most dangerous places to live. This is Surviving the EMDC. Here's your host, Craig Needles. By their very definition, correctional facilities are supposed to do what their name suggests, correct the behavior of those who break the law. They are not supposed to be punishment facilities. If they were, perhaps that's what we would be calling them. Other than those sentenced to life for the most horrific of crimes, people who go to jail or prison eventually do come out. And the hope is, once they come out, they do not go back in. Rehabilitation is the goal, to come out of incarceration a better person than you were when you went in. But it's not that simple. Life behind bars can be incredibly hard, especially at a place like Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. And while, yes, it is true that some people at EMDC have done horrible things, it's pretty easy to make the argument that if we want inmates to return to society as better law-abiding citizens, we might be making that harder by subjecting them to the kinds of conditions that have been reported at that jail. This is lawyer Kevin Egan, who has represented numerous inmates at EMDC over the last decade. The institution was originally built for about 150, and, and uh, they now describe the capacity as 450. And that's not because they built new facilities. But what they did was they went in and retrofitted what, what was already there. And so a, a unit that originally had 10 beds was retrofitted to contain 24 beds. And then there were two other rooms that had been used for programming, that is for AA or education, uh, that type of thing. Those rooms were were converted into into, uh, units for people to sleep in as well, and they had bunk beds installed. So... um, there were now 24 beds in a unit originally designed for 10. Studies have shown that, that when, you, when you crowd people, when you um, don't provide programs, and when you have a population that's constantly changing, it's a formula for increased violence. So inmates uh, find they have to be hypervigilant, they have to, uh, you know, watch their backs at all time to avoid being assaulted or, or uh, uh, being having their their legitimate medications taken from them. Living in fear is no way to exist. Being on edge only contributes to the potential violence at EMDC. While the jail has been squeezing in as many people as possible, it turns out that sleeping accommodations were one of the only things that were considered when designing the facility. When they expanded the, the number of people, uh, there were no modifications to the plumbing, 
to the um, ventilation system and, and, and the rest of the infrastructure. So, you know, where there were two showers on a range for 10 people, there are now two showers for 24 people. Sometimes inmates end up sleeping on, on the floor with their head beside the toilet because they have more inmates than they can, they can accommodate reasonably. And so obviously that raises some hygienic concerns when, when someone is sleeping on the floor beside the toilet and another individual gets up and uses the toilet in the middle of the night. I've heard stories that one has to pull the sheets up over their head to avoid being splashed. And, and, um, you know, the, the air system, I've, I've been in there and I've seen the, the air vents with, um, it almost looks like hair coming out of the vent and it's accumulated dust and, and human hairs and, and dry skin, that kind of thing just over the years has, has clogged up the ventilation system to the point that you can actually see looking at a vent, you can see debris hanging out of it. Incarceration isn't supposed to be easy. You would likely need to travel quite far to find someone who thinks inmates should be living in conditions that you would find at a vacation resort. But it shouldn't be too much to ask to not be urinated on while you try to sleep. It's easy to believe this kind of inhumanity has a negative impact on the behavior of inmates. Unfortunately, conditions, as I've described, seem to make people worse than when they went in. And so they they develop a a disdain for authority and they uh you know it, it doesn't do much for their own view of themselves that they're treated almost worse than, than animals leaving the jail with a lack of confidence and a disdain for authority doesn't exactly set one up for a prosperous life when they're freed if anything it could lead to just reincarceration and if an inmate who has done his time ends up going back inside there have been expectations from other inmates that were dangerous on a number of fronts. There used to be an issue with uh, individuals secreting narcotics or, or contraband in body cavities when they, before they came in. Um, and certainly there had grown to be an expectation on, on each range that when a new inmate arrived on the range, they ought to be carrying a package. And those who, who didn't may be subject to, to being beaten up. But, you know, they, they came up with new scanning equipment that was supposed to capture that. It may have had some success, but using sophisticated equipment like that does require training that appears not to have been fully implemented either. So, so drugs continued to get in that way. Not to ruin a beloved children's toy, but when inmates are able to smuggle drugs in the jail, it often comes through transportation of a kinder egg concealed in the anal cavity. And while this system has become a little less successful with the implementation or partial implementation of new technology, there are still ways for drugs to get in the facility. We do know of at least one correctional officer who was charged with, with delivering contraband drugs to a range. Unfortunately, when they or fortunately for the correctional officer, I guess, when, when she went to trial, the evidence was that there were so many drugs on the, found on the range 
after uh, she was charged, but they couldn't identify what it was she delivered because the drugs that were found were of such greater volume than would fit in the packages that she was seen slipping through the bars that um, she she was acquitted. Um, so the, the recommendations over the years have been that there should be random searches of correctional officers. There are a few major problems with drugs getting into the jail. For one, it contributes to potential violence. Secondly, overdoses are a major concern for prisoner health. Fentanyl, primarily, has become a major cause for worry. Guards delivering narcotics to inmates is an extreme circumstance, but it has happened at the facility. And while this is not a regular occurrence, it is something to be concerned about. I get lots of reports from individuals who, who tell me that they were beaten by correctional officers. Jamie Pijol, who, who died in, in EMDC, had told me that. Um, there's, uh, uh, I, I believe there, there's still an ongoing investigation into, into a, a more recent death um, in which uh, there's a suggestion that, that correctional officers may have beaten the individual. Um, so, yes, I, I, I think that that's, that's a legitimate cause for concern and, and something that requires further investigation. Correctional officers do not have an easy job in, in, in a place that's, uh, especially one that's overcrowded and, and uh, prone to violence. Um, so they, they often have to intervene in, in uh, incidents of violence. A lack of compassion and empathy from some guards has been a problem at EMDC, and there are always fears it could lead to problems for inmates. This is Allison Craig, who represents Jamie Briggs, the latest person to die at EMDC. I've, you know, heard more stories than I can count about uh, inmates, not just at EMDC, but everywhere, um, that are in medical distress and calling for help and that sort of thing. And their calls and cries of pain, etc., are ignored. Obviously, they are good officers, but um, many of the officers there see um, inmates as less than human and not deserving of the care or attention. And, um, you know, it seems that Mr. Briggs was ignored, and I, I fear a lot of other people would be too. The lack of care and professionalism is, according to Craig, at the heart of the tragedy surrounding her client. Briggs was arrested and held in the EMDC on November 9th of this year. He died on November 16th. Craig says it was negligence that led to his death. He was in court with me the next day, Thursday morning. It's, um, fine. I mean, he didn't look like he was feeling wonderful, but he was fine and appeared in court and was able to walk and talk, etc. Um, then at his next appearance on the Monday, we were told in court that he couldn't attend because he couldn't stand up. And the jail, uh, I don't know who appeared. Um, I was just remote and this is what was passed along to me. But the jail said, we think it might be a head injury or high blood pressure. So he was put over to the next day and um, it was marked for medical attention. And the jail said, yes, we'll get him medical attention ASAP. Then the next day, the Tuesday, I had a call booked with him. Um, I was told by the officer on the phone that he couldn't attend um, because of the withdrawal symptoms. And he wasn't feeling well because of the withdrawal symptoms. And then the following morning, he was found um, dead in his cell. 
and at least as far as I'm aware, and his family is aware, at no point was he ever taken to the hospital for medical attention. Days later, the first day of the inquiry, um, I guess Monday of this week, we hear an officer testifying about how he could not possibly care less about the inmates. And as far as he's concerned, they can all just stand in the corner for 12 hours straight um, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that sort of gives you an idea of the attitude of many of the people that work there. These are all things that contribute to the problems at EMDC, drugs, alcohol, living conditions, inmates on the edge. And in some cases, corrections officers who are not doing their job properly. All of these things add up to significant issues that seem to be at odds with the goal of rehabilitating the inmates who live there. The first case in which I was involved was, was Randy Drysdale, who died in 2009. Uh, he's the first of the now 21 deaths at EMDC, uh, individuals who died of unnatural causes. That one was a homicide. What, what came out of the inquest was that uh, initially the, the um, authorities, the, the ministry, said that he had slipped and fallen in the shower and, and had a brain injury that uh, led to his death. What came out of the inquest was that, in fact, he was punched by two inmates uh, and then uh, dragged into the shower where he was uh, urged to say that he had slipped and fallen and and the other inmates said that of course there are no correctional officers supervising the the area um, and and so no one was ever charged with murder but at the inquest the jury uh, determined that it, he did die of homicide Randy Drysdale's death shook Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. He was in jail awaiting a bail hearing on charges of assault, shoplifting, and breach of a court order in 2009. He hadn't even been convicted. He was just awaiting a hearing. After Drysdale's inquest, adjustments were to be made. There was a recommendation that, um, that they install video cameras because, surprisingly enough, in 2009, even though every probably every municipal parking lot in the city had a, had a closed-circuit TV, the, uh, the jail didn't. And so the jury um, recommendation was made in 2011, and I believe that uh, in 2013 they finally got around to installing video cameras at, at EMDC. And around that time, um, there was another death, Laura Strawn, Laura Strahan was at the jail for only five days and she died of bacterial pneumonia complicated by dehydration, a strep infection, and the H1N1 virus. These were all treatable medical conditions, yet at EMDC, her condition was left to deteriorate. There were um, concerns about the adequacy of the healthcare facility at EMDC. So uh, recommendations also came out of that inquest, uh, including video monitoring and, and, and round-the-clock nursing care. Um, those uh, both inquests recommended that the cameras be installed and that they be monitored in real time. Uh, and that was to prevent similar deaths occurring in the future. To this day, uh, Although there are video cameras installed, 
they are not monitored in real time. It's good that the recommendations were followed in installing video cameras, but the fact that they weren't monitored in real time led to one of the most notable deaths at EMDC. That was the death of Adam Cargus. He was murdered by his cellmate, Anthony George, in a gruesome assault. The individual who murdered him, uh, his name is Anthony George, uh, was apparently high on, on drugs and alcohol that night, having brewed alcohol. Um, on the range and uh, it was Halloween night Um, the video suggests that that the beating went on for more than an hour Uh, inmates on the floor below were able to hear uh, because the floor was shaking and and, uh, Adam's head was being bounced off the toilet and other things Inmates below actually asked guards to go and check. Um, nobody did. The, the correctional officer assigned to that unit um, didn't um, didn't check, didn't see anything happening on the monitors, actually got up at one point and closed the door that's never supposed to be closed between the, the cell block and the hallway. The next morning, Again, undetected by correctional officers, Anthony George dragged Adam Carter's lifeless body wrapped in a sheet uh, from his cell and propped it up in the washroom. The trail of blood uh, went from the cell to, to the washroom and other inmates were charged with cleaning that up. And what it points to is a culture in there where you have to go along to get along. Some inmates were charged with aiding and abetting the murder for helping George clean up the blood. But for these inmates to feel that there may not have been a better option than to go along with the murder, that perpetuates the culture even further. Cover up the crime or you're next. The jails are near lawless in real time. Repercussions and punishments come well after an incident occurs. Adam Cargus's death brought about some serious questions for EMDC. They had adjustments to make and significant changes to implement. And they have done so. But the big question is... Are those changes working? The repeated death and, and maybe the accelerated pace of, of death would suggest that not enough is being done. But they have taken some strides in regard to supervision. They're, they're trying a different supervision model where one of these former program delivery rooms has been converted back into a guard station and, and uh, blast put in between that uh, guard station and, and the range, the, the uh, day room on the range, so that they can actually have be able to monitor visually what's going on on the range. I don't know that there's been any studies to show how effective that is in curtailing violence or, uh, or other uh, activities that, that ought not to be going on there. But... Um, that, that indicates some positive steps that uh, the ministry is taking to, to try to address the problem. Even with the different supervision model and the guards being able to actively monitor the range, is that enough? Some would say no. Tear down, fire everybody, start a new jail. I mean, I'm of the view that uh, far too many people are in pretrial detention anyway. So I think there's, you know, systemic discussions to be had about how many of them 
the inmates that are there now need to be in there. But leaving that aside, I, I don't see anything short of wholesale change, tearing it down um, and hiring a whole new staff and starting over. Um, I don't see anything else working. The problems are well known. Um, I would ask people that are, you know, skeptical um, to follow the current inquest that's going on about the um, the various deaths there, and in particular to listen to what the guards are saying, including that one I just mentioned. I mean, at some point, somebody thought that he was the best witness to testify, and he was saying that I, I think everybody should just stand in a corner for 12 hours, and I couldn't possibly care less. So um, if that's the prevailing attitude, um, I think people really need to start listening when people speak up about the conditions there and not just saying um yeah these are just criminals who cares they deserve to be where they are um no human deserves to be treated the way people at emdc are treated we've seen life in jail portrayed in movies and crime documentaries but it might be hard for some to imagine that a place as dangerous and violent as emdc could be in our own backyard and here we are. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.